Well, good morning. <laughs> good morning to those that are watching online. Traditions, Ording Valley. My wife gets to watch me on TV this morning down at the other campus, so you're welcome, uh, Jeanette, apparently. Um, get ready. It's coming. So we're, we're going to jump right into the Word, and we have been talking about this new kingdom that Jesus came promising. You know, that really was what put Jesus on the map before he was even doing miracles or some of the other things that he became well known for. Jesus was known as this kind of humble guy, kind of seemed very unassuming, and yet he came saying that he was bringing a new kingdom. And he said that he was bringing a new kingdom right in the midst of multiple other kingdoms. In fact, in the nation of Israel where Jesus uh, showed up, where God decided to become human and live as a man for the sake of all of us, Jesus came right in the midst of a very strong and intense Jewish culture. He came right in the midst of an oppressive Roman Empire. He came at a nation that was the crossroads between many other nations and kingdoms. And in the midst of it, Jesus walked around saying, um, hey, in case you want to know, I brought a new kingdom. And you should be a part of that new kingdom. In fact, Jesus has invited, since that moment, Jesus has invited all of us to be citizens of his kingdom. And as you can imagine, that kind of a message uh, was, was pretty attractive to people that weren't very happy with any of those kingdoms, but it was pretty offensive to some of the people who liked the kingdoms of the day or wanted their particular kingdom to win out. And we get, we're familiar with that. That's human nature, right? We all want our way, and we kind of get frustrated when other people push their way. And yet Jesus had the audacity to come and say, my way's the right way. My kingdom's the right kingdom. I'm actually the kind of king that you've been waiting for all along. I'm the king that you should be following. And uh, people were curious, like, is he crazy? Is he amazing? Is he wise? What's going on with Jesus? And Jesus didn't always answer that question for them. And, and so we've been going through a, a section of the Bible called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, that really has been called by scholars and theologians and pastors throughout history as it's been called the Kingdom Manifesto. It's Jesus' kind of declaration of the culture of his new kingdom. He says, hey, if you want to be my followers, if you want to be citizens of my new kingdom, no problem, this is what that looks like. As you read through the Sermon on the Mount, though, you realize that it's going to take some divine help for us to live up to some of those kingdom standards, and Jesus has also invited us to that. Jesus never expects us to go this alone. In fact, from the beginning of, of history, Jesus' intent was that we would walk side by side with him. He knows that we will not be effective and successful at life without that, that every one of us in our relationships, our careers, the other things going on in our lives, he has intended that for us, and yet he has intended us to walk through those things with him. And that means that it will be a little bit different than all the other people doing those same things without him. And Jesus explains that in the Sermon on the Mount. He calls us to this fairly radical culture shift, to stop living the way our families, our cultures, our nations have taught us to live and start living his way. And his way involves some really unique things. In fact, Jesus calls us to, to uh, expect to be rewarded for humility and servanthood, and even suffering, things that the world just frowns upon, avoids at all costs. And he says, I'm going to reward those things way more than I'm going to reward ambition and success stories and you living your best life. 
now or later or whenever. He says, I'm going to reward your humility, your servanthood, your struggles even. I'm going to bring reward to those things. Jesus says that, that we are called to live in a radical, not a normal, comfortable level of affection, but a radical level of love even for people that don't like us and people that we don't like naturally. He says, I want you to love them. That's very different than how we are taught by our current civilization to respond to people that disagree with us, that we don't like. That I mean, what does it look like to love those people? You don't have to agree with them, but what does it look like to love them? And Jesus says, you're going to have to figure that out, and I'm the right person slash God to help you. And Jesus calls us to come closer to God through things like prayer and fasting, things that challenge us to live lives of faith, things that challenge us to be uncomfortable in our pursuit of him. Jesus kind of holds, holds nothing back. He says, hey, I, I want you in my kingdom, but this is what it looks like to be in my kingdom, and I'm going to help you do it. And so citizenship in Jesus' kingdom calls us to live life differently than the world around us at every level. At every level. From the motives and thoughts that are inside of you, Jesus kind of addresses some of the motivations that we naturally say, well, this is who I am. It's what I'm passionate about. And Jesus says, yeah, we might need to tweak that a little bit back to what I created that for inside of you. This is just the way I think. And Jesus says, it's not the way you were meant to think. He transforms the way that we relate to people, the way that we relate to our kids, our spouses, our friends, our coworkers, our bosses, our employees. He wants to change the way that we naturally relate in all of those areas. Jesus changes what we do with our time and our money. We do not like when people mess with our schedules or our bank accounts. But if you read through the Gospels, Jesus has his hands in all of those. He's like, oh, you were going to spend money on that? That's a bad idea. Stop doing that. Oh, you were going to keep that money for that? You should give it away to something where you can't see the results. I promise you it'll be worth it. Oh, you were going to waste your time on that? I have something better for you to use your time on. It'll cost you more. It'll be harder work, but it'll be way better. Jesus does not hold back. He wants it all. And even our religion, you know, we're, we're participating in a religious activity of sorts this morning, but Jesus says, don't get me wrong, if you turn this into rituals and practices and you subtract the relationship that I want from you, then it all means nothing. And so Christians throughout history have said, well, I guess this is kind of religion, but it's, it's not really a religion, it's relationship first, because our religion is meant to be a relationship with the one true God. And so Jesus calls us to all these things. And today we're going to look at kind of the, the central part of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, 19 through 34. You can turn there on your Bible apps, your Bibles. If you want to, you can write that down if you're taking notes. Matthew 6, 19 through 34. And Jesus challenges us in yet another area. And it's kind of a winding passage. We're going to walk through it this morning. But really the big question is this. What do you really want in life? Jesus asks questions like that, and he relentlessly pursues the answer. He's not mean about it. He's actually very compassionate, loving, kind. As many of our songs this morning addressed, he just knows that if we don't get the right answer, it will cost us. 
And so he says to all of us, he says, hey, so I see how you're living, but I'm a little confused. What is it that you really want most in life? What is it that you're really shooting for? What is it that you're really trying to get at? Like, what's the outcome that you're hoping for here? Because I see all the decisions you're making, and it's a little bit of a mixed bag. Where are we going with this? And I want that question to ring true for you as we read through the pieces of this passage. What is it that you really want in life? What do you want? What do you want to be remembered for? What do you want to characterize your life? What do you want to be written on your tombstone or maybe posted about you on whatever social media platform is is uh, the big deal? Whenever you pass away, whatever. What do you want to be said of you by your children, grandchildren, friends, coworkers? I've been in quite a few funerals lately, and it's amazing to hear the words that are said or not said about people that pass, right? It will be known what you really wanted. People can read between the lines, and so can the Lord. And so Jesus is going to lead us through a couple of different concepts, asking questions like, what are you investing your life in, your time, your money, your energy? What are you focusing your your life on, your eyes, your mind, what is it focused on? Some of you are like, I'm struggling to focus right now, Caleb. <laughs> Some of you at home, you're like texting someone else and on Instagram while you're watching this sermon. <laughs> Feel convicted, okay. <laughs> but, you know, what are you focused on? Jesus is going to ask the question, what are you worried about? Some of you are like, how did you know? Because it's human nature to be worried about something. Jesus is going to ask us all these questions because he really wants to know what we pursue. And those things, what we invest in, what we focus on, what we worry about, they really point out what we really want in life. And so let's, let's take a look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 34. And we'll read the first couple of verses. Jesus says here, in, the, in 19 through 21, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Instead, store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Let's pause there for a second. And when Jesus says treasure, he is including money. We'll, we'll see that in a moment. He recognizes that money is one of the most cross-cultural, cross-generational idols that human beings struggle with. It's something we all have to deal with, and it tempts us to make it the center focus of our life. And so he, he deals with that. But when he uses this idea of treasure, Jesus is talking about the whole of your life, the gift of life that he's given you with everything in it, your energy, your abilities, your skills, your personality, the capacity capacity that you have, the, the influence that you have, all of it. And money is kind of a tangible representation. As we sometimes talk about in tithes and offerings, it's a tangible representation of how all those other things are being invested. And Jesus correlates how we invest our lives with where our heart really is at. And he makes a simple comparison. He makes a comparison between investments that will waste away that are fleeting, that are short-term, that have an expiration date, right? He says, no matter what treasure you choose in this life, either bugs can eat it, oxidation will wear it away, 
Or if it's really valuable, eventually somebody else is going to have it. They're either going to steal it, they're going to buy it, they're going to wait for you to die and take it. There's an expiration date on everything good that you invest in in this world, right? And then he says, but there's this other option where you can invest, and what you invest in in this other option, there's no expiration date. And he's comparing the investments of this life in this temporary world, a world that is broken and dying because of human sin. He says, because of human sin, everything has an expiration date in this world. And we mourn over that, don't we? We grieve over that. We hate the expiration date of good things in this life. We grieve over seasons of life that we wished could have lasted forever. We grieve over seasons of relationship or people that we wished could have lasted forever. We grieve over these different things that waste away or wear out, and the new is never as good as the old. Have you noticed that? They don't make things like they used to. This is unfortunately very true most of the time, right? So we grieve these things that are good, that because they are part of a broken and dying world, Jesus says there's an expiration date on it. But he says there's also a reality in which there is no expiration date on good. There is only an expiration date on evil. Doesn't that sound like a wonderful world? Where everything good lasts forever and everything evil is doomed to an end. That's the promise of the kingdom of Jesus. That's the promise of eternal life. Jesus says, hey, if you'll trust me through this expiring world, expiring life, I have something on the other side. If you'll be faithful to me, if you'll trust me in walking through it, I have something on the other side where good never ends and evil always does. And that's what I want to be a part of. I hate evil in the world. I hate when I get on social media or when I see interactions. I hate when I see it between my children. And you know what I really hate is when I see it in myself, this sin, selfishness, pride, arrogance, evil. And I'm like, oh, Jesus. And the Apostle Paul even wrote, Jesus set me free from this body that is attached to death. And he says, but man, we sure have some hope in Jesus, don't we? Because Jesus said, Jesus was not worried about it. Because Jesus has access to good that never expires and evil that always will. And so he says, hey, if, if you were, if you're smart, you're going to invest every bit of your life you can in the place where good never expires. And if you're foolish, you're going to invest the, as much of your life as you can in a place where you can see the good, but it's not going to last very long. He's talking about this world versus the kingdom. And he says, and I'm watching, I'm curious what you're going to do, because whichever choice you make really shows where your heart is. Shows what you really want in life. And so Jesus is inviting us, calling us to invest our lives in God's kingdom because investing your life in God's kingdom guarantees long-term satisfaction. And if you're, if you're uh, in, at all involved in the financial world, you know that most good investments are not quick turnarounds. Pa occasionally people get really lucky and then they tell everybody this is the way, this is the stock to buy, this is the casino to visit, this is the machine to pull, whatever. And, and how many of us know Real satisfaction always requires delayed gratification, right? 
And Jesus says, that's all we're talking about here. A lifetime of delayed gratification in some of our investments of time, energy, money, skills, whatever God's given us in life can result in an eternity of it being worth it. And so he calls us to that. And then he kind of puts it in, a, in another light here in the next couple of verses. He says, your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. So again, this kind of practical comparison here, he says, your eye is like this lamp that gives light to your body. And think of it like your eye is like a headlight, your eye is like a flashlight, and wherever it shines, you can see and you can go there, but wherever it doesn't shine, you can't see, you can't go there. And our eyes are amazing in that they take whatever light is around us and they actually use that light to direct us, to give us a sense of where we are at, where we should go, how we should live. And that's a wonderful thing. But you also know that no matter how good your eyesight is, I have horrible eyesight. So I'm always telling my kids, I wear contacts that are probably like an inch thick. I mean, you know, my eye has to make room for the contact in there. Because I I can't hardly see a foot in front of my face without them. And so I'm always telling my kids, turn the lights on when you're reading. You know, don't sit at the computer too long. Don't stare at the TV, not too close, not too far. Don't strain your eyes, because I know what it's like to have bad eyesight. I know what it's like to, you know, hear a bump in the night, and my wife's like, go, go sacrifice yourself and see what that is. And I'm like, I can't see anything. She's like, well, turn the lights on. I'm like, they are on. You know, I'll see a lamp, and I'm like, there's somebody in here. And I get closer, I'm like, oh, it's the lamp. Right? Like, I know what it is to have bad eyesight. And Jesus says, hey, here's the reality, though. If the lights aren't on, it doesn't matter how good your eyes are, you're stuck in darkness. And if you're convinced, can you imagine if you were in a dark room and you're like, man, I can't find, I, I can't find my wallet. And someone's like, well, why don't you turn the lights on? You're like, the lights are on. Don't tell me the lights are off. Jesus is saying, if you're convinced that the darkness is the light, you are in big trouble. Because what does Jesus want to lead us towards? He wants to lead us towards flourishing, towards life as it was meant to be. And he wants us to turn on the lights, to focus on the lights, and to walk towards the life he has called us to live. But if we focus on the darkness and we convince ourselves that that's the way to flourishing, he's like, you're going to be lost in a cave. You're never going to find it. And notice what he says here. He doesn't say, you know, if your lights work well. He says, if your eye is healthy, then your whole body, which represents the rest of your life. And he's talking about here your focus. Your eyes are your focus. Where your eyes go, your body follows. Where your focus is, your soul follows. And when your focus, when the things that you focus on, when your focal points in life are healthy, the rest of your life will be healthy. But when your focal points are unhealthy, the rest of your life will be sapped of whatever vitality God put into it. And we see that proven true all over the place, don't we? I mean, think of it right now. Think of the examples of of areas around us, people around us that are focused on things that they think are the most important and it's only bringing death and darkness to their life. 
right? We know this, that, that when we focus on certain things, whether that be things that are, we are known sin, when, let's just start with those. When we focus on objects of lust or greed, right? When we focus on sex and money, we know that we will chase and chase and chase. And what do those things do? They deteriorate our souls, Right, but we're also now having enough time to study the realities and the results of social media on entire generations, and we're realizing that because of the ability of our eyes to focus on things that we obsess over, whether that be certain kinds of news, certain lifestyles, the ability to constantly compare ourselves to the world around us, all of these different sins of the soul are finding expression right here in front of us every day. And we are focusing on things that often are just bringing darkness into our souls. Do you know one of the most refreshing things you can do is turn your phone off for a 24-hour period some of you are like, ah, don't say that out loud. Yeah. We'll have, a, we'll have an altar time later. You're just going to lay your phone down on the step for a minute, count to 60, and pick it back up again, okay? Just rehabilitation. No, but the reality is that we are so addicted to our window, to our addictions. And they all become addictions, not just pornography, but all of the other obsess human obsessions of the world. They become addictions, and we have to keep going back to them. We all have our addictions of choice if we're not careful. And Jesus says that if you think that that's light, what does it say? He says how deep that darkness really is. And so we see that the reality of a culture that has more of what it wants than ever before, has access to seeing things around the world more than ever before, what are the results? Are rising levels of depression, anxiety, suicide, panic, having to come up with conditions that never existed before to describe the state of human souls. And so Jesus is telling us that your focus is either adding to your life or draining it. And we know that's true even how many of us are around people that are just consistently negative, right? I mean, that's maybe the broadest sweeping. If you're just negative all the time, oh, there's no hope. Oh, just see the news today. Oh, the president. Oh, the governor. Oh, the this. Oh, my boss. Oh, my wife. Oh, my kids. Or what if you're like, oh, man, my kids. Oh, my wife, man, my husband. Oh, you know what, man, I'm thankful. I'm thankful I live in the United States. There's a lot of things that we have, we're blessed by and have access to. You know, we're not perfect, but man, we sure are, we sure are blessed in so many areas. Oh, man, we live in the state of Washington. What a beautiful place to live. I'm thankful the economy is doing okay in our, our part of the country. Man, I'm thankful. What if we walked through life focused on what we could be grateful for rather than what we could complain about? I guarantee you that would be a culture shift. You would not fit in in America anymore, right? And I would just encourage you on social media, don't ever complain, it's a horrible place to complain. What a useless place to complain. Don't ever post your negative nonsense on social media. If you want to post it somewhere, write it in a prayer journal, give it to God, and don't ever look at it again. 
Because your focus on negativity is destroying you and it's a cancer to the people around you. But when you look at Scripture, Jesus is always calling us to put our focus on something that gives life. And Jesus sums up these first two analogies of what do we invest in and what are we focused on. In verse 24, he says it this way. He says, no one can serve two masters. For you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. Because you cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. And he uses money, again, as the most common human idol across culture and throughout history, but it's not the only one. And Jesus makes the point here that your life is serving something. You are invested in something. You are focused on something. And most of us, when when we come to Jesus, we want the both and option. Jesus, you know, when it comes to his kingdom and the others, it's an A or B choice. It's a yes or no answer. And we're like, I'll take C, all of the above. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You only have so much time, money, energy, capacity, relationships. You only have so much of that stuff. You have a limited amount of resources. You can only serve one or the other well. And he says, if you try to kind of, if you try to kind of double fist with God's kingdom and another, I want some of God's kingdom, ooh, that tastes good, I want some of the world's, ooh, that, okay, I like it. If I can get the peace and love without the conviction over here, and if I can get all of the pleasure without the pain over here, that would be wonderful. And Jesus is like, that's not reality. It doesn't work that way. And, and so he brings us to this point where he says, if you think you can do that, you're actually going to hate one and love the other. Have you noticed, though, how um, hatred these days sometimes looks a lot like love? We're very sophisticated with our hatred. We're very polite and kind, at least in person. That's why we love social media. It's the only place where we feel comfortable being as visceral on the outside as we are on the inside. And so Jesus isn't saying that you're going to openly hate God. He's not saying you're shaking your fist at God and saying, I'll show you. No, he's saying you think that you're loving both, but one of them is going to feel hated. One of them is going to feel despised. And you are either despising what money offers you or you are despising what God offers you. You can't can't do both. You can leverage one for the other, and often we leverage God's principles to be successful with finances and never give him the glory or the credit. We can leverage money to serve God's purposes. Money itself is not evil. In fact, it's a resource, and God gives different amounts of it to every person, and it's, it's to be used with gratitude and generosity for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the king. And Jesus says, if you're trying to, if you're trying to, Live in both kingdoms. You're showing God that you really don't value him that much. You're despising him. You're hating him. How many marriages have been defined by spouses saying, no, 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 I really do love you. But their schedule shows that they love their job more. Their use of their finances shows that they love their hobby more. If that's us, we're showing the one that even though we say we love, we really despise. And it's felt. And the same is true with God. 
You know, this is really what Jesus is doing here is he's putting our life investment and our focus in terms of one of our core values here at Sound Life Church. One of our core values is to be devoted to Jesus, wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus. He is our one passion, obsession, pursuit, and everything else revolves around him or it gets out of the picture. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. He's saying, hey, I want devotion or nothing. And by the way, so does everything else calling for your attention. It wants your devotion. It wants your worship. It wants to be your idol, your God, your master. And you were made to give your life to something. The the choice that you have is what you give it to. And so everything either revolves around Jesus or it sidelines him. And we cannot effectively sideline Jesus. Jesus is saying that true devotion doesn't multitask. It doesn't. And our culture loves multitasking. We love multitaskers. All of, our, all of our devices and our technology allows us to multitask more things. We want to keep all of our options open. We want to have everything going at one time. We want to keep all the plates spinning. Balance it all. Never say no. Always say yes. And Jesus is saying, I love you, but you're living a lie. What is it that you really want? I know it's not me, but what is it that you really are shooting for here? And so he goes into summing up this in in kind of some of the practical things that that all cultures, again, relate to and some of the basic needs. But I want you to notice the first line of this next passage in verse 25. He says, that is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Okay, put the passage away and think about this. Because you can't serve God and fill in the blank with your favorite idol, because you can't serve both, that is why Jesus is commanding you. You know what he says? It's translated, that's why I tell you. Jesus is commanding here. He's not suggesting. He's not saying like, hey, don't worry about it. He's saying, I'm commanding you to stop worrying based on this reality that you can't serve God and money well. So stop stressing about how to serve both. In fact, if you're serving the wrong one, that's why you're stressed. And I can tell you to stop worrying because I know that if you'll serve the right one, he will take care of your worries. Let's keep reading. That's why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life about more than food? and your body more than clothing. Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. Apparently Solomon had some nice clothes. Verse 30, and if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. He's juxtaposing temporary with eternal and says, if he cares about the temporary, how much more does he care about the eternal? Why do you have so little faith? So don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, people who don't believe in God, but your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Let's pause there for a moment. 
Jesus addresses some of the most basic functional needs of all of our lives, that we wake up every day, and by the way, good job, you decided to wear something today, well done. You know, maybe you ate or coffee was your breakfast, but you're already like thinking about lunch or second breakfast or whatever your, your food of choice is. You know, but we wake up every day with these needs for food and clothing, shelter, some of those basic needs. And Jesus says, how much of your time do you invest and focus on those things? And you know, in our culture, we're blessed that very few of us really struggle over food and clothes on a regular basis. We may all go through a season here and there, and there's some in our community right now that are in that season. But for the most part in our society, food and clothes are a plenty. But I bet we still think about them a lot. You know, John Tyson in his book, Beautiful Resistance, he mentions in his chapter on fasting, he mentions this study that was done on food dynamics in different, um, in different echelons of society. And so he says, he, he notes that every part of society has an obsession with food. It just looks different. He said the, fo- the, the poor... The poor really focus on how much food. The quantity of food is the most important question for the poor. The middle class have the luxury of focusing on the quality of food. Oh, that's bad for me. I don't want that. Oh, do you have organic? Oh, how nutritious is that? The the middle class are the ones that look at the little calorie thing on the back of the box, right? And they want quality food. And then the upper class, the wealthy, they focus, because those things are a given, they focus on the presentation of the food. Did you see how beautiful that plate was? I know I'm not there yet because that drives me crazy. I'm like, I want portions, <laughs> not presentation. Just shows you a little bit of how I grew up. But all that to say, he notes that the, num- the amount of money you have does not change the human obsession with food. And we, we could follow the same track record with clothing, amount, quality presentation, right? We are obsessed with these day-to-day temporary things, and Jesus is saying, why do you spend so much time invested in those things? Why do you spend so much money invested in those things? Why are you so focused on those things? He's like, that's normal for people who don't believe in God. In fact, what's the word he used? They are dominated, mastered by the next good moment, the next good meal. I'll confess to you, there's days where like, It's a stressful day, and all I can think about is, like, I wonder what we're having for dinner tonight. I hope it's good. I hope it's beef. You know, like, there's days where that's where my brain goes, and you know what? Jesus at times, he's like, hey, Caleb, I could actually give you peace right now. I could give you joy right now. Will you lean into me to satisfy your stress, your anxiety, these things? And what does Jesus say over and over again? Why are you worried? Why are you worried? Jesus is pointing out that just like the God-money dynamic, that our obsession with those things is not only a waste of time, worrying is not only a waste of time, worrying is actually a symptom of idolatry. Now, I I will say that worry, uh, anxiety, those are natural parts of the human experience. If you're like, man, I worry a lot. Jesus isn't guilt-tripping you. He's saying, be careful because that worry says that you're probably caring too much about the wrong things and not focused enough on the right things. 
And that's not to minimize some of the, the clinical uh, realities that some of us deal with. It's not to minimize some of the trauma that creates a, a history of depression or anxiety. But I do want to remind you that Jesus does not give any excuses. He says, do not worry. And when we say how, he says, come to me. Come to me. Come closer. Why? Because Jesus guarantees your restoration. He guarantees your healing. He guarantees your wholeness. He does not show us the journey each of us will take to get there. And sometimes it's a long journey. Sometimes it's a momentary miracle. We don't always get to pick which. God knows which is best for us. But Jesus says, hey, I, I know that it's normal in your culture. It's normal in human nature for you to worry about all these things. But that's not an excuse. Because I have something better for you. And he's not denying our needs. And let's skip to the end of the passage, verse 34. He says, so don't worry about tomorrow. There's that command again. Don't worry about tomorrow. Why? Because tomorrow's going to be easy? Because God's going to make it all better? Because he's going to solve all your problems? No. Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. What? <laughs> so today's trouble is enough for today. Thanks, Jesus. Jesus isn't denying the struggles that we have. He's not denying the brokenness of this world. In fact, what did he say in his final words to, to his disciples? He said, hey guys, in this world, you are guaranteed to have trouble. Remember, broken, dying, temporary, ruined by sin. In this world, it was made to be good, but you're guaranteed to have trouble. But he said, don't worry. I will give you my peace. And the testimony of the disciples writing in the New Testament is that that peace does not make sense. It, it surpasses understanding. Why? Because it's peace in the midst of trouble. It's peace when you have all the reason to not feel peace. If you're in our, day, our, our Bible reading plan today, uh, Nikki Gumbel, who writes the devotional piece, he talks about meeting this pastor who was unfairly accused. He's in a prison, and he, has, he opens the message in the prison, a prison that had horrible living conditions in a third world country, a prison he would probably never get justice in. He would probably die of some horrible disease. He was underfed, underclothed, had a lot to worry about. And he said it struck him that the, the minister opened the message in the prison that he would probably never leave alive, and he said, God is good all the time. How did he do that with so much trouble? Because the testimony of Christians is not that their life goes perfectly, it's that as they draw closer to the God who promises these kinds of crazy things, God actually answers his promises. He meets you in the place of pain. He says, oh, the devil will give you that kind of brokenness? Well, I will up his ante with more peace than he can take away from you. I will up his ante with more joy than can be stolen from you because that is the promise of a kingdom where the good keeps on being good and the evil expires eventually. But Jesus says to us, which one do you want to live in? And verse 33 really sums up. It is the central point of the entire Sermon on the Mount. He says, seek the kingdom of God above all else. 
Not along with everything else, not as part of everything else, not after everything else, not when it feels good to you, not when Caleb preaches better than other times, not any of those. Above all else, seek the kingdom of God. Pursue. Seeking means a relentless effort, an ongoing going after it. I will get the kingdom of God even if I lose everything else. And Jesus says, if you will seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, which isn't magic, that just means to do the things that are right, do the things that you know are right to do. If you will do those things, what does he say? Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. And you know what he wants in your heart? He wants you to say, game on, Jesus, I will play that game. I will do my part. I will tow my line, and God, I want to see you tow yours. Jesus is like, that's what I've been waiting for. That's the life of faith I'm talking about. That's the kingdom of God. That's the new kingdom. We can win at this game. But he points out that most of humanity will choose worrying about clothes and food rather than worrying about the kingdom of God. Most of humanity will focus on the day-to-day interests rather than focus on the eternity of the kingdom. Most of the world will invest their lives in the here and the now, temporary expiring good and miss out on a good that will last forever. And my prayer is not, not us. I think that we live in a nation right now, and God bless our nation, but I think we live in a nation that is seeing the failure of these pursuits. We are wrestling with the failure of our pursuits. We are wrestling with the fact that we've had more food, money, and access to luxury than any culture ever in history, and we're still not happy. We're still not satisfied. We've taken the devil up on his promises, and we're realizing that he doesn't keep his end of the deal. The whole world, the world's seen it throughout history. The wealthy of society have always had this testimony that like, man, I got everything and I'm still not happy. I got everything I could have and I'm still depressed, discouraged, anxious. But now we have a whole society full of people that have experienced that. And what are the results? Angst, anger, rage, depression, frustration. We don't even know what to do with it. And Jesus is sitting here and he's saying, hey, why don't you stop worrying about that stuff? Which how do you think people that are frustrated, when my wife's like, hey, Caleb, stop worrying about that. How do you think I react to that? I want to prove that what I'm worrying about is actually, I don't want to be embarrassed like, oh, you're right. I'm like, what do you mean? This is serious stuff. Jesus says, I got that part under control. Why don't you get yourself under control? Why don't you direct your own heart towards me and I'll take care of the rest? And that is a step of faith. You know, I really, there's so many applications to how we invest our lives, focus our lives, what we worry about. But I really feel like the Lord wanted me to address the issue of anxiety for us today. But so many of us live with a ongoing level of anxiety, myself included. I wrestle with anxiety off and on. I mean, I have since, since middle school. And so often I'm learning that when I feel this like tenseness of anxiety, this kind of like panic mode rising up inside of me, I'm, I'm learning to just go to Jesus with that sooner rather than later. 
I'm learning to not exhaust myself trying to run from it and just go to Jesus and be like, Jesus, I don't even know what I'm anxious about right now. I'm just anxious. And the Lord leads me through that. He's like, Caleb, do you trust me? Yes. Caleb, is everything, have I taken care of all your needs in life? Yes. Caleb, have I blessed, have I blessed you beyond what you know you could do for yourself? Yes. Caleb, can you trust me tomorrow? Yes. And as I have that conversation with God, peace replaces anxiety. That's how it works in my life. Jesus wants to lead you through his way of doing that in your life. And I just want to ask you this morning, if you are tolerating anxiety as the norm in your life, would you press into the kingdom of God in a way that you never have been before? Would you press into Jesus because you know what I think he wants to do? I think he wants to bring freedom. I served under a pastor who would say over and over again, he would say, if you take care of what God cares about, he will take care of what you care about. If you take care of what he cares about, he'll take care of what you care about. And what he meant by that is when you seek first the kingdom of God, when you seek the kingdom of God above all else, when you take care of the kingdom that God is caring about that involves all the people of the world, that involves focusing on loving others and loving God, that is less focused on yourself, when you focus on that, you don't have to focus on the other things because Jesus is going to take care of those things. But you have to take Jesus up on his promise. You have to walk in that way. And the problem with the kingdom of God is it always calls us to lay down things that are of this world. In order to worry about the kingdom of God, you are going to have to stop putting time and energy and money and focus and worry onto some other things in your life. Some of you have had to do that to save a marriage. And it's been worth it. Some of us have not done that to save different relationships and we feel the pain and the angst of that. Right, and it's the same with God. He says, hey, let's do the work. If you will take care of what I care about in your own life, in your own circle of relationships in the world, if you will live righteously the way you know to live, I will take care of the other things that you care about. You know, one of the best ways for us to, <clears throat> I, I talk to a lot of parents who are concerned about their kids growing up in a, in a difficult world, an ungodly world, and all sorts of those things. And you know, there's things as, as families and churches that we are responsible to do to care for our young people. Do you know the absolute best thing that you can do? Parents, grandparents, seek first the kingdom of God. Relentlessly seek the kingdom of God. And if it's a 50-50 toss-up, is this a choice between the world and the kingdom? Radically choose the kingdom. You want your kids to grow up and have a healthy understanding of the gospel in the middle of a world that laughs it away? Live out that gospel and see who's laughing at the end. Live out the gospel. Live radically. Make choices of integrity and generosity. Give away more than you can ever get. Be foolish for the sake of the kingdom and watch your children will flourish in the kingdom of God. Because if you say, God, I don't even know what to do with my kids. I don't know how to deal with the things in our society, but I will relentlessly serve you. God's like, I can take care of what you care about. I can take care of what you care about. Stop being anxious about your kids. Stop being anxious about your finances. Stop being anxious about your job. Stop being anxious about all these other things. And start being concerned with the kingdom of God. What does it look like for you to live like Jesus at your workplace, 
What does it look like for you to lead your business in a direction that does not worship the almighty dollar first and foremost? Need some good business thinkers to think about that one. What does it look like, educators in the classroom, for you not just to live up to the norms of society, but think about the flourishing of the people in your classroom? What does it look like, moms and dads, to value the legacy of your children more than what your 401k is going to look like? What does it look like to invest yourself in things that matter in the kingdom, relationships and good that will last for eternity? Would you bow your heads with me this morning? I want you to think about what are the things that you've cared about a little too much? And what are the things that God cares about that maybe you haven't given enough focus to? I trust that the Holy Spirit will bring to mind, there's not time today for me to list all the areas, but I trust the Holy Spirit will bring to mind in this moment areas of your life where maybe Jesus is saying, hey, I love you, but you care a little too much about that. Why don't you lay it down for a while? I think Jesus will lead you to areas where he says, hey, I want you to care a little bit more about this. And you're going to have to take some time or energy or money or whatever from somewhere else that you're invested and put it on this instead. So, Father, I invite your Holy Spirit to come and move in our hearts. That's your desire. Just say yes, Lord, to that in your own hearts. Yes, Lord. Holy Spirit, come and show us where we need to care less about the things around us in this world and we need to care more about you. Show us. Show us. And Father, I pray that you would make us people, like Hebrews 11 says, who live so full of faith that we are people of whom this world is not worthy, that the best this world has to offer is not good enough, that you have to reward us in your kingdom because we despise the rewards of this world for the sake of loving a God who is worthy. Move in our hearts, burn in our hearts a passion for your kingdom, Lord. Thank you for doing the miracle of faith in us. Help us to live it out in Jesus' name. Amen.